guys ready to start with a little music this morning? A little song and laughter? I was reading this thing in the news several months ago, and it was, uh, it was a news story talking about the existence of atheist megachurches. I mean, what do you do there? Do you sing worship songs at an atheist church? What do you sing? <laughs> Shout to the void on the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to nothing. What do you sing to Children's Church at the Atheist Mega Church. <laughs> what songs do you sing to kids in the Atheist Church? Like, no one loves the little children, all the children of the world. No one hears you when you cry, no one hears your lullaby, no one loves the little children of the world. Reason why, reason why we exist, but there's no reason why. Reason why, reason why we exist, but there's no reason why. You vote gently down the reef Wallowing, 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 wallowing In your own belief Let's do the rounds Remember the rounds? Oh, no, we don't want to do that Let's try a new one Evolution, this I know For Charles Darwin told me so Accidentally alive If you're weak, you won't survive <laughs> Yeah, what do you say to the kids, right? What do you say to the children? Well, we have lots of things to say to the children. Don't watch it. <laughs> Let's see. Let's get the pointer going. All right, you see, hopefully, that we've got the next two sheets there in front of you in our little series there uh, where we're going through anthropology, the study of what? What's anthropology? The study of? People. Yeah, yeah, mankind. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, we started off with some good news about, you know, mankind back on, what, page 11, I guess, is where we started. And it was all good. We're made in the image of God. Here's what that means. We were just having fun. And then, starting on page 13, we talked about how sin entered the world and how sin got from Satan to us. That wasn't much fun. Well, it gets worse. Gets worse. So for the next two, maybe three, but probably two weeks, we'll talk about how sin has just really messed us up, and uh, this will set us up, of course, for our need for Jesus, right? Because there is no need for Jesus if there is no sin. If the sin problem's not that big, then you don't need the gospel. So that's what we're doing here. Is we're, we're getting ready for that. You might also notice if you're extremely observant that the uh, font of this week is different than the weeks previous. This is the font that I wanted all along. I was shocked this week when I went to print the notes and saw it was a different font. And uh, I'm a bit of a stickler for formatting and fonts and stuff. So I've corrected that wrong, but I've made an inconsistent workbook for you now as different fonts. So some of you, that may just cut you to the core. But uh, anyway. All right. Well, um, let me pray, and then we will get into uh, the lesson today. 
All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and thank you that you have spoken in such a way that we can understand and have it affect our lives. God, give us great insight uh, today as we read your word that we would understand how this affects us and that we would be drawn closer to you because of your truth that you've shared. God, help us to be focused this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, the title of this section, uh, within a section, is We Are Corrupt. Okay? Not the cheeriest news you wanted to hear (laughs) this morning, but it's true, right? By nature, humans are corrupt. Last week, or the last lesson, we started with Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And we discussed how sin went from Satan to Adam down to us. And the rest of that verse says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that's really what this is going to be focusing on, is how death has really spread to all of us because we have all sinned. Okay? A little bit more review. Satan fell and became the tempter of mankind. What was Satan before he fell? Angel. Okay, angels good or angels bad? Okay, angels are good. But what happens when angels fall? Yeah, and we know them as fallen angels, or you could say demons, right? Okay, that's where demons come from. Okay, and Satan, uh, of course, when he fell, he took other angels with him. We'll talk about that more way down the road. But in Revelation chapter 12, we hear about how Satan, the dragon, he took a third of the stars with him when he fell. Adam fell, he passed that fallen nature onto the rest of us, and the sin of Adam has been imputed to the rest of us. We are all guilty from birth because of his headship. Adam was the representative for who in the garden? What did we talk about last week? Adam represented all of mankind. That's right. And so when Adam fell, we all fell. And in the same sense, who is the head of our salvation? Jesus. And so by Jesus's Righteousness and his glorification, those who are in him are now considered righteous and will be glorified. So everybody's got a representative head. It's either Adam or Jesus. All right? So man now exists with the image of God. That didn't go away. But also with a fallen nature that opposes God. So the little phrase I gave you, the image of God is not erased, but the image of God has been effaced. Okay? If you efface a piece of art or something, you've done something to it to, to mess it up. Well, the image of God hasn't been taken away. It hasn't been totally destroyed. Every human life bears the image of God. And we believe in the sanctity of human life for that reason, right? But we also realize that even those teeny little, tiny, cute little babies are teeny, tiny, cute little sinners, aren't they? <laughs> yeah? It's a natural instinct to rebel, to sin. We don't have to teach children to do those things. All right, so let's begin today by going to Genesis 6 and read some big overarching passages about humanity as a whole. With all of that knowledge that you have now, let's go to Genesis 6 and hear what has happened to mankind. Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. Now, of course, this is in Noah's day. So this isn't contemporary with us necessarily, but we'll talk more about that too. Uh, Let's just see the condition of mankind at this time. Who would read verses 5 through 8? Rex, go ahead. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so let's dwell initially here on verses 5 and 6. Notice the adjectives and adverbs. Now, if grammar's not your thing, sorry. But if grammar is your thing, what do you notice about adjectives and adverbs here in verses 5 and 6? We can start with the adjective describing the wickedness of man in verse 5. How is the wickedness of man described? Great. So great is an adjective that can mean something really positive, right? But not in this context. (laughs) Yeah, it was very much, it was a lot. The wickedness of man was very great. Now that gets modified next in the next phrase there in verse 5. What do we see there? How much of the intent of the thoughts of man's heart was evil? Okay. It says in the NASB, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was mostly evil or what does it say only evil okay so you start putting these things together and this is like really extreme stuff here isn't it you know sometimes uh, communicators will be told you know don't use sweeping statements like all of or only or all that you know you always got to leave room you know for error or leave room for an exception or whatever Here, we don't have any room for error or exception. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil. And then here's an adverb, continually. It wasn't just on Thursdays, okay? (laughs) Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil, continually. Okay, how about verse 6? We see that the Lord was sorry. Now, if if that trips you up, you can refer back to page four of our notes. We did cover this in the difficult passages section when we were talking about God's immutability, that God is unchangeable. Uh, This is one of those passages where it's like, well, it looks like God changed his mind, but did he really change his mind? We talked about that back then, and we can talk about that more later if you want. But God was grieved in his heart because of this condition of man, because of man's wickedness. So great was man's wickedness, Every intent was only evil continually. Now, as you think over the course of human history, what made this scenario unique? Okay, Because this is a pretty strong assessment of mankind. What made this particular scenario unique that's being described here? I guess another way to ask it would be, was there ever a time between then and now where this statement could be said? Or was that a unique time where it was just then that every intent of his heart was only evil continually? What do you think? (laughs) Okay, Joe casts her vote in favor of now also. 
No one else wants to tiptoe out toward an answer here? Because my, my other question is, what's not unique about it? All right, so what's unique about it? What's not unique? You guys aren't being very brave this morning. I need more coffee. <laughs> Evelyn, are you going to say something? You seem like you want to say something. Well, I'm trying to put it together. Okay. <laughs> Well, what did this result in? What, what, was, what was God's response to this depravity? Well, ultimately, Jesus, yeah, but immediately it was the flood, right? What, what comes after this? Well, it's, he just wipes, wipes humanity out. Kind of like uh, go to the bowling alley, you know, you throw your first ball, and then the, the uh, pins come up and whoop, wipes all the other ones out, and then it sets the pins back down. Well, Noah and his family, the eight, they go on the ark, and they're safe. They float up, and everybody else, whoop. Wiped out. Now, what did God say after he, he had the flood? He gave him the rainbow as a promise of what? He would never do it again. This is his covenant with mankind that he wasn't going to do that again. All right? So in that sense, it is pretty unique, isn't it? That it resulted in a worldwide wipeout and then like, kind of like a restart. It's like God hit the reset button on the earth. That's pretty unique. Now, as we think about man's condition... Boy, it, it seems like this is happening again. Or, or maybe it just, you know, after some time, after Noah and his family, they came back, they repopulated the earth, and we were back in this situation, it seems, not that long after. And do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 24, and I think Luke's account also? He says that the coming of the, the Son of Man, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. Noah. So Jesus here is at least telling us that there's going to be a time again in the future where it's going to be like that. And I think a lot of us, the more in tune we are with what's going on in our world, the more we feel like that's oh, kind of already happening now, isn't it? The beginning of birth pains. Okay? And it's going to get more and more and more intense. It seems like this was a time of extreme, intense sin, blatant sin on the face of the earth. And perhaps we're headed back to that type of blatant sin. But whether it's outwardly expressed or not, we know that the root is the same, isn't it? In every generation, in every man, naturally, from birth, there's this rebellious streak in all of us against our maker. Okay? So any other thoughts on Genesis 6 and the situation there? Good? Yeah, go ahead, Joel. If you lack self-esteem? Self-esteem, yes. This is not where we should move. Oh, yeah, well. Um, but if you want truth and want the answers to your lack of self-esteem, the Bible will give you the full answer, won't it? Because what we find with God is he, he is always truthful with us, of course, and he tells us hard things. And you have to understand the hard things to appreciate the good things. Because if you, you know, go to the world, which obviously won't send you this direction, uh, secular psychology isn't going to tell you you're totally depraved, right? Um, so if you hear what God has to say, you will appreciate the gospel more. And if you go to secular psychology and say, hey, you're great, you just have some daddy issues, it's your dad's fault, you're fine. Does that result in a need for a savior? No, it does not. No, it does not. 
it results in a need to take care of dad and get him out of the way so you can be the best version of yourself or whatever they want to say. All right? So we need, we need to be torn down by the truth of Scripture in order to be built up by the truth of Scripture. We need it all, don't we? Well, let's look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, the first six verses. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. And if somebody's got a, a heading in their Bible with like a couple sentences that set up the psalm here, you, you want to read that for us? Psalm 51. Anybody got a little description? Lizzie, you got one? Yeah. What does it say? It says, To the choir, my, to the choir master a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Okay. So... You've got uh, this big event in David's life. We remember this, don't we? David and Bathsheba. And this is like David's great sin as we remember it. Uh, of course, he sinned in other ways, but this is the big one that we remember. We also remember him for his uh, valiant efforts against Goliath and his courageous heart. But uh, even the best of men sin, don't they? And he had this famous sin with Bathsheba where he had an adulterous affair with her, and then he had her wife killed in battle. He set the whole thing up so uh, or her husband, uh, Uriah, would go to the front lines in battle, and he'd be struck down, so that way David could have her all to himself. I mean, really nasty, wicked, evil, bad stuff. And David didn't immediately repent of it either. He didn't come to terms with it on his own and confess on his own, but God sent him Nathan, the prophet. And Nathan confronted him with this uh, story that he told and told David, hey, you're, you're the bad guy. You need to repent. So after that, David writes Psalm 51. Now, do you think uh, David was feeling the weight of his sin as he was writing this? You better believe he was. Yeah. Feeling the weight of sin. So now let's read verses 1 to 6. You want to read that, Lizzie? Verses 1 to 6. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, you will let out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only, I have sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sinned in my life to me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David here in that section makes reference to the timing of his sin nature. According to David, when was his sin nature present? There you go, verse 5. In sin, my mother conceived me. So we don't have any indication that David is talking here about some act of sin that uh, David was conceived in. It, he's speaking here of his own sin, and it was present from conception. He had this sin problem from conception. Not only was he sinful from birth, he was sinful from conception. That's how deep that root goes. Not just, you know, the... When a child turns two, does he become a sinner? Not just when he's born into this world, does he become a sinner? From conception, according to Scripture. And notice here that David isn't saying, 
I was given the opportunity to choose for myself, good or evil. And man, I chose evil. That was, that was bad. That was a, a really bad choice for me. I used my free will really wrongly. That's not the way he presents it. Um, now, he doesn't blame his sin nature for his sin. He obviously is taking responsibility for his sin. But he's also linking us to why he sinned. It's because from conception, he has had this sin nature that has permeated his being. And that is what ultimately led to every act of sin in his life. And that's what's ultimately led to every act of sin in your life. Again, you don't get, get away with sin because, well, I, it was Adam's fault. I mean, I can't help but do what I'm doing. It's Adam. That, no, no, no. That's not how God judges. You still have to take responsibility. But you, while you take responsibility, you make that connection and say, where does that desire come from? Well, it comes from the fall. Okay? And that's basically, I guess, what I was wanting to talk about with the implications. Sorry about that. But the implications is that uh, we have a sin nature which leads us into our own personal, customized life of sin. We each have one, don't we? We each have our own custom track record of the ways that we've rebelled against God. But we have the same root. We're all just different fruits from the same tree, the Adam tree. And God in his grace, if you're a Christian, he has made you into a new creation. And you're bearing different types of fruit now, aren't you? Any other thoughts or questions on Psalm 51? Feeling all right with that? All right, let's keep moving. You see, we're going to Jeremiah next. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 10. last two verses is where I want us to concentrate, and you see that the heart is mentioned there a couple of times. Now, if you need to refresh your memory, you can look back on page 12, I think it was. We talked about the heart a little bit, but um, what is the heart? When the Bible talks about our heart, what's the Bible making reference to? Yeah, yeah, our, our immaterial spiritual existence, because you've never met a mere mortal, as C.S. Lewis said. You've never met somebody who's just mere flesh and blood and bone. But everybody is material and immaterial. Everyone has a soul. Okay? And so when the Bible makes reference to our heart or our mind or our spirit or our soul, the, the Bible is speaking about, or our conscience, about our, who we are as spiritual beings. 
Okay? So now take that knowledge with you into verse 9. What does it say about who we are? <laughs> yes. So recognizing this isn't talking about that little muscle pumping blood in your chest. It's talking about something much deeper, a spiritual reality, that who we are in our natural state, we are deceivers and we are desperately sick. Okay? The prophet's use of the words deceitful and sick reveal an intrinsic corruption that occurs naturally. Okay? So you could say instead of deceitful and sick, you could say crooked. That's another way to translate that word for deceitful. And you notice that it doesn't just say sick, it says desperately sick. That's because the Hebrew word is one word that means very, very sick, chronically ill, looking like you're at the end. That's why it says desperately sick. That's the Bible's commentary on man's natural state in his heart. Not, oh, precious, sweet, good, you just, you just are so lovely. That's not the Bible's commentary. Okay, The Bible's commentary is that our heart, by nature, is deceitful and sick. And I want us to look at some other passages to round out the thought here. Starting in Jeremiah, staying in the same book, flipping over to uh, chapter 30. Jeremiah 30, 12 to 15. Much of Jeremiah's ministry was seeking to remind Israel of this fact, that they are sick and they are in need of God, their healer, that they are sinful and they are in need of a Savior. And do you, do you know, did Jeremiah have a, a good response or a bad response to his ministry? It was bad. Okay? Jeremiah's nickname is the weeping prophet because he just didn't have many converts you, you want statistics of conversions? Jeremiah didn't have them. But he was faithful to God. His job, and this was a, a terrible time in Israel's history. You had the northern kingdom was long gone by now. And you got the southern kingdom hanging on, but they've got these issues with uh, the Babylonian Empire. And so you've got captivity that's just right there lurking at the door. And you've got this rebellious people that have just lost their way. They're so worldly. And Jeremiah's job is to go out and to tell them that they need to repent. And it was a very low response. We sometimes refer to Utah in the Christian world. We refer to Utah as a low response mission field. Uh, because you don't exactly have the situation here that maybe you hear about in some mission, missionary stories. If there was a tribe in Sri Lanka and they were waiting to hear about this God they had never heard before. It's not like that in Utah County, is it? In Utah County, you go out with the message of the gospel and a lot of times the response is just really low. Well, Jeremiah had a very low response ministry. So let's look at verses 12 to 15. Um, Jeremiah 30. Who can read that for us? Okay, go ahead. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciful foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. 
Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Wow. So God is here just straight up telling them, I'm the one who's been inflicting you here as a nation. I've been poking you, calling you to repent. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk, that was his question to God is, God, why are you allowing these nations to beat up on us? We are your people. And God's answer is, you're not living like my people. I don't see faith. I don't see repentance. I don't see humility. I don't see love. And God's using other nations to discipline his people. You know, he does that sort of thing. He uses persecution to discipline and to purify his people. With the church, that happens too. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter's talking about this, and he says, judgment begins with the house of God. God's people have to face God's discipline. And so here, he's saying, look, this is verse 15, because your iniquity is great, there's our word again, that word that sometimes means good things, not when it's saying your iniquity is great, Okay, your sins are numerous, because of that I have done these things to you. And look at that little sentence there at the top of 15, or the first half, your pain is incurable. Ouch. Your pain is incurable. Okay, now let's go over to Ezekiel. Flip right on over to Ezekiel, a couple books over. Got little lamentations in between. And go to chapter 18, verse 31. Ezekiel had a similar ministry to Jeremiah at a similar time. Ezekiel 18, verse 31, it says, Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, verse 32 is good too. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Now, what do you find interesting about God's instruction here to his people? Particularly verse 31. Say, who said that? What? I was going to refer to 32. Oh, okay. Well, what, you can go, what do you got on 32? Well, just that, that God has no pleasure in it. Good. Yes. Uh, you know, God is not the, uh, the kid with the magnifying glass on an ant hill. I, I almost sounded like I was from Missouri there, didn't I? An ant hill. <laughs> and he was, uh, you know, he gets pleasure out of watching those little ants fry, you know. That's not God. Okay? God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. So what's he calling Israel to do in verse 31? Okay, keep going. What else does it say? 31. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Okay. Now, what's the problem with that? Very good. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? <coughs> that you must be born again. And he says, well, I can't crawl back into my mother's womb. And Jesus is talking about being born from above. We have to be born of God. God has to make us a new creation. I mean, we, we don't go out to the world with the gospel and say, make yourselves a new heart, and then God will accept you, right? That's not what we say. But that is here what God is setting before them, this idea of changing themselves to cast away all their transgressions and to make themselves new. 
That's the challenge that Israel has. But Israel can't do that. And as you keep reading Ezekiel, you have this fleshed out throughout the book. Let's go to 36, and you'll see where God tells them what's actually going to happen. What's going to happen, because they cannot make themselves new. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. God gives them a promise of them becoming new, but they're not going to do it to themselves. God's going to do it. God's the one who's going to make them new. Let's look at verse 25 together, Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, here it is, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What a promise. Now, has that happened yet for Israel? No. You look over there in Jerusalem, and they're not worshiping Jesus like it's predicted they will worship Jesus. But who has God started with? Us, His church. Have you been given a new heart and a new spirit? Have you been born from the, uh, a natural birth, but also been born of water? And when Jesus talks about being, uh, being born of, uh, oh, how, how is that described? And I'm totally blanking on the verse. In John 3, he says you must be born of water and the spirit, right? That's what he says. Okay, when he says being born of water there, some people will interpret that as natural birth. But I think he's actually making reference here to Ezekiel. I think that makes more sense in the context of talking to a, a man who knew his Old Testament really well. When God says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's what happens today when a sinner repents and places his faith in Jesus. He's sprinkled clean. His conscience is purified once for all. And he's born again by the Spirit. He's given a heart of flesh. He has a new spirit, a new heart within him. And so Israel was given this command, hey, why would you die? Why would you die, Israel? Just change and make yourself new. They can't do it. And so God gives them a promise. And he says, there's coming a day, there'll be a new covenant. And in that day, I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water. And I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to put a new heart within you. And you're going to walk in my ordinances and my statutes. And you're going to praise me. Okay. Now, again, he started with the church, but a day is coming when... He will fulfill that promise he made to them at that time, okay? So the heart is desperately sick. We need a new heart, and that happens through the gospel. But in our natural state, the heart is no good. Thoughts or questions on Jeremiah 17 before we go to Romans 3? Joe. Right. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, that is the reality for the Christian, is that you are living a new existence. Where uh, the New Testament talks about the old man and the new man. Put off the old man. So that's basically what I was telling you to do, wasn't it? Put off the old man and embrace the new man. we got a ruckus over here on this side of the room. <laughs> causing a ruse. <clears throat> um, you know, it's interesting, and you know, my testimony of salvation is 
I got saved when I was 16 from a non-Christian home. And uh, many of you know the details there where my mom uh, committed suicide and we lost our house. All that happened on the same day. And, but I, I became a Christian that day. And it's, that's really like a strong line in my life's history of phase one and phase two. Old man, new man. Uh, I mean, trying to take my mind back sometimes, I can hardly even remember the details of before I was a Christian because it was just a radically different life. Um, so, I mean, the day one of being a Christian, I had a new, I, I didn't have that old house anymore. I was living in a new place and a new family structure. I mean, everything was different. So, uh, but that's the reality for every Christian is that you have an old self and a new self. And the command is to put on the new self. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? Romans 3. Romans chapter 3 is where we go. Um, again, this is more bad news. You've got to understand the bad news before you can embrace the good news. Romans 3, starting in verse 9, we see the Apostle Paul here with an extended quotation from the Old Testament where he is making the case that all people are fallen. So would someone read verses 9 to 18 for us? Romans 3, 9 to 18. Okay, go ahead. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none not righteous. Oh, sorry. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep seeing the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then 19. Uh, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be and all the world may become accountable to God. All right, very good. So, um, does the Bible teach that man is sinful? <laughs> you better believe it. Yes, it does. So, what's interesting about the book of Romans is you can really trace the gospel through the book. I mean, the book is divided up into sections in Paul's logical structuring of the letter that really give you the gospel. And what he does in the first two and a half chapters is he gives us this big idea that all people are condemned in their sin. In chapter 1, he's talking about the Gentiles and how the Gentiles know by nature that God exists. Okay? You can go outside and observe creation and you can see, actually don't have to go outside, you can just know by all that's in your life that a God exists, that there's intention in this world. And he says the Gentiles, in their natural state, suppress that reality and replace the truth with a lie. That's what they do by instinct, by nature. Okay? That would be you guys in this room, the exception of Joe, right? <laughs> okay, so uh, that, that's, just, that's just what happens. By nature, we are instinctually, instinctively rebellious. Okay? Now... In chapter 2, 
It's almost like Paul could hear the uh, Paul could hear the Jews saying, "Yeah, Gentiles are sinful," you know. So then in chapter two he says, "Oh, you Jews, you too, you're also sinful." So Joe just you know she was cheering Paul on, saying, "Yeah, that's right. All these Gentiles, what pagans?" Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Paul says, you too, Joe. <laughs> right? And he talks about uh, the Jews being sinful also. So in chapters 1 and 2, he's saying the Gentiles are sinful, the Jews are sinful. And now in chapter 3, what Evelyn just read for us, he's summarizing and saying every person is condemned in their natural state. Everybody. And Psalm 14 is his main reference. If you see the formatting in your Bible, you'll notice that he's quoting something here. Uh, But he also quotes Psalms 5 and 10 and even Isaiah 59. Some might ask, now is this a bit harsh? I mean, look look at these statements again. Verse 10, none righteous. Okay. Verse 11, there is none who seeks for God. That's just real rough. Perhaps some of you might describe your own testimony as, I started seeking. I started seeking. Okay, now you have to kind of make that fit with this because you got the Bible telling you this. Now, I, I'm not denying your own experience, but you got to make a jive here, don't you? you got to figure out what was actually going on in your life. Okay. All have turned aside, verse 12. Not most, all. Together they've been, become useless. There's none good. There's none who does good. And, and look at these descriptions. The throat is an open grave. They've got the poison of snakes in their mouths They're because their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are really quick to go shed blood. And in their paths, what do you find? Destruction, misery. They don't even know the path of peace. And they have no fear of God before their eyes. Harsh? What do you think? Makes me think of the story of the woman at the wall. And as she's explaining to Jesus that they worship in the mountains and she worships her own way, she's seeking the God that her and her community have made up in their heads. Mm. But God came to her. Mm-hmm. And he placed the gospel in front of her. And then the light switched on. But I see that as the example of yeah how it really happens in our lives, especially mine, that I wasn't seeking, although it felt like I was. Yes. He pursued me first. Okay, so now looking back then and giving a biblical summary of what was going on in your life, how would you describe what was going on then? If it felt like at the time you were the one initiating and seeking, what do you say now was really going on? That uh, he interacted with my heart first without me seeking him at all and gave me the desire to do so. Good. Yeah, we get these uh, words in the New Testament. Uh, God calls people. Uh, God draws people. You, you heard these passages. God draws people to himself, and he calls us to be justified. Okay? Now, that, we're passive in that, aren't we? This is God being active in doing that. And does his drawing happen instantaneously in our experience? Often not. It takes some time, doesn't it? Uh, God seeks after us. We love because he first loved us. Most of the time we experience and understand that love over time. 
over the course of time, maybe even years for some of you, where I could look back and say as a child, as a, as a young child, there were ways in which God was drawing me to himself. And I had some right ideas about God because of the way he orchestrated my life and got truth into my life. But it wasn't until later that the call was, it showed how effectual it was and that I first believed and was born again. Okay. So even though it may feel like, well, I'm the one getting up in the morning saying, you know, even though I'm not a believer yet, I'm still wanting to know what's going on. You know, I'm going to go discover what God's up to. If you come to the moment of genuine belief in the biblical gospel, you look back and you say, that was God's grace all the way. 100% God's grace. Okay? That's how we understand that and describe that. And notice verse 19 also, where he invokes the law. And Paul says that the law speaks to those who are under the law. Okay? So that, what's the purpose? That everybody would shut up. <laughs> that all the world would become accountable to God. So the question naturally is, whose mouth can offer a legitimate appeal in the face of the law? What sinner can stand before God with God's holy standard? Say just the Ten Commandments. We'll just do ten. What, what sinner can stand before God and offer a legitimate appeal and say, yeah, yeah, I'm good, based on those ten? Nobody. Those, just those ten kind of have a way of nailing every single person to the wall, right? Every one of them. So uh, there's no one who can squeeze out, who can slide away and say, oh yeah, the law missed me. <laughs> Nobody can do that. Okay? We're all guilty. Okay? John Frame says, these passages describe what we are apart from Christ. There is some danger in this procedure because the Bible's descriptions of sin apart from grace are terrible. Taken in themselves, they destroy hope. But the Bible does encourage us to take these evaluations in themselves in order to take away the hope that we can save ourselves. And that's what an honest evaluation or an honest survey of these, these passages, and we just scratched the surface. That's what it does, right? It takes away the hope that you could ever save yourself or that God wants you to meet him halfway. Uh, the illustration of God puts you on the first step of the staircase and says, I'll meet you halfway. He's up at the top. You don't have any hope of doing that. Okay? You, you can't even get to the first step, let alone go from there. Okay? So the Bible has nailed us to the wall in that sense. Uh, Romans 5, you can flip over there if you'd like. <laughs> Romans chapter 5 clearly teaches that death is the penalty for sin. So now man is naturally, spiritually dead and is subjected to physical death. Additionally, Human beings now sin by nature. We do not have to be taught how to disobey God. Okay? So those are the um, first blanks there in that next section on your sheet, man's new nature. Man is naturally, spiritually dead and subjected to physical death. And human beings now sin by nature. So let's look... Um, Again, at this very important passage, we looked at this, it may have just been last week, but Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 15, uh, last week we were focusing on headship when we looked at this. We were seeing what we got from Adam and just the connections to Adam. Well, now that we understand that, and we understand that Adam was our head, now Christ is our head, I want you to focus on the descriptions that scripture says that you have naturally, uh, the the 
aspects that you have in your natural state. I'll start reading in Romans 5, verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the one transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ. Verse 18. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the disobedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so starting in verse 15, what does it say that you have now? Uh, What do you possess because of what Adam did? What, What do you got going on in your natural state? Death. For if by the one, the transgression of the one, the many died. So you've got death. Okay? Keep reading down. What else you got? In your natural state. Not in your saved state. In your natural state. What do you got? Very good. Judgments. Give me another one. Condemnation. Very good. Condemnation. What else? I think we can get one or two more here. Disobedience. Disobedience. Because there was one man's disobedience, but that also transferred, didn't it? It's not like that part was left out. That came to us. Verse 19 talks about disobedience, and what does it say after that? What title are you given? Sinner. Yeah, there you go. You've been given the title. You, in your natural state, have the title of sinner. Okay, I think that's pretty... Fair summary list of what we have in our natural state. It does look pretty bleak, doesn't it? God says this is what you got going on on your account. There's a deadness. Through one man's sin, many died. Now, again, this talks about how deep the root is because how many of us were alive with Adam? We weren't even born, right? How could we have died when we weren't even alive? Well, it's saying that something affected Adam's, what is it, progeny? That's the right word, right? 
progeny. Those who would come after, not progeny, pro, prodigy, uh, but, but progeny. Uh, Adam's progeny was affected. Even though you weren't born into this world yet, there was a death that took place that affected you that when you would come into this world, you would be dead by nature from even conception. Lizzie. Asked the question, like, how comes if Jesus came and died, he made humanity? Yeah. How come we're not born, you know, like, like righteous or better, like the new humanity after Jesus? Well, that's because he didn't make a new humanity. I was kind of tracking with you there, and then it said new humanity. He's like, well, what does that mean? Well, like, not not born in sin. Right. He didn't come to do that. He came to build a church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And so that requires a conversion. He didn't come to reverse all the effects of Adam yet. Okay? We're, we're premillennial. We believe that's coming. He's going to reverse the effects of Adam. Um, and in his millennial kingdom, he's going to be the perfect steward of the earth and will reverse the, all these other things that we think about that are associated with Adam. But in the meantime, he's building a church. And people are still born in this natural state under the headship of Adam. And there has to be a conversion then that brings them into the church. And so the church is a, should be a reflection, a preview of what is to come, even beyond Christ's future kingdom into the new heaven and new earth. We should be a preview of that. But we are not the substance. We're not the ultimate fulfillment of what God is doing in this program. Okay? Good. Any other thoughts or questions along those lines? Well, let me, uh, let me end with some good news because this is all been you know kind of down and we're getting ready to go uh corporately worship god together and you want to have a little more in your mind than just these things right i mean you got to have these things but you want more okay so as we do think about the gospel um it's a very intriguing thing because we we live in the already not yet this is a, a really important concept that will help you in much of your study we live in the already not yet So if I were to ask you, are you saved? What do you say? Yes. I'm going to let that linger, see if anyone else is going to say anything. (laughs) So, So your full salvation has taken place right now. So no resurrection glorified body then. Because you know the Bible talks about that as part of your salvation too, right? The Bible talks about we have been saved, we're being saved, and you know what? The New Testament even says we will be saved. What do you mean the New Testament says we will be saved? What does that mean? Yeah, there's there's a lot more coming to our salvation here, isn't there? Is this earth all that there is? This fallen earth all that there is? Praise God, no. (laughs) No. Okay. Okay. There's so much more that is going on in God's program. So in one sense, you are already saved. Yes, you are. Absolutely. You've been born again. You belong to God if you're a Christian. But this also exists because it has not yet appeared what we will be, 1 John 3. We will be like him. We will see him. There's this fullness of salvation. Full salvation hasn't come yet because you will be resurrected with a glorified body, never to die again. And that is the fullness of what God is doing in your life. And now we live kind of like on this slash line, don't we? 
Because we recognize that, yeah, we were born into the world with this stuff going on. But we also realize that right now, this stuff's been dealt with. We don't have the title of sinner even anymore. We're children of God. We, we're, we're saints, is what Scripture says. But we still sin, don't we? And we still have this body of death. This is what Paul struggles with in Romans, Romans chapter 7, where he says, yeah. The law came in that sin would even increase. And when the law said you shouldn't covet, man, that just made me want to covet. But I've been saved. Yet the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. What is going on? Well, we're living on this slash line here. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul concludes in Romans 7. He's not delivered from the body of death yet. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he praises God that one day he will be delivered from this body of death. He'll be in a glorified state, never to sin again. And so even though, you know, we want to see what the Bible says and we want to feel the weight of this, we also want to recognize that God is, is doing something in us. And we've been made new creations. You're already a new creation, but you're not yet what you will be. And that could just be real difficult. You will be resurrected, just like your Savior, never to die again, to have a glorified body that no one can ever destroy to walk in a true newness of life where you won't ever sin for the rest of eternity. But starting right now, you are a new creation in Christ. Because when you recognize this is our problem, yet Jesus came, he took on flesh, and he died in our place for our sins, that we would not only be forgiven, but we would be sanctified. And in this life, God is slowly conforming us to the image of Christ. And even now, we recognize that we are hopefully... I don't know if holier is the right word, but more set apart than we were at the first. And God is doing a work in our lives leading up to full salvation. And so we don't have to be so caught up on these like, man, we're just all the worst. Everybody's terrible. And uh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just uh, let's pull the plug on earth. You know, we don't have to have that kind of attitude, though you can start to feel that way when you study these texts. But instead, you can say, praise God that he is building his church right now that he's placed me in his church, that he's doing a work in me and he's not done with me and that he's going to do some great things. Joe. I don't know if this makes sense. When we die, are we dead? Mm. There's a great Christian song that's titled, It Is Not Death to Die. So, when you die, this is where the physical and immaterial stuff comes into play again. You've got to remember, you're not just physical. So yes, your, your body goes into the ground, and your body, physical body, is dead. But you're still alive in the Spirit. Uh, Paul says, <clears throat> to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay? Um, and then there's coming a day when body and soul will be reunited again. And it'll never be separated ever, ever again from there. Okay? Good question. Other thoughts or questions to close us out? Okay, well, we'll start here next week and uh, finish this lesson by, again, examining some text that will bring us down. But you've got to be brought down to be built up sometimes, all right? Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for today and our time in your word, and we ask your blessing on the rest of our service that you would uh, just be honored through our worship today in the singing, in our prayers, through the time of uh, examining your word and the sermon that we would just set you apart in our hearts as Lord and honor you rightly. Help us to be more like Jesus because of the time we spend here together today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.